0: we approach Christmas. Uh, We come to a kind of a natural break in the book of Colossians. we kind of finished the body of the text. And so uh, into the new year, we'll look at the the conclusion and and farewell. Um, But this week and the next two, as we approach the celebration of the birth of Christ, um, we're going to spend some time in in Luke chapter one. So go ahead and open up there. Uh, If you don't have uh, a Bible with you or you don't even have one at home that you can read easily. Um, there's one in the pew there near you. Grab that. Take it. We want you to have it. Um, it's our gift to you. If you uh, if you have need of that, take it home. Um, as we look at the uh, beginning of, of Luke, um, I'm not honestly sure. Maybe Maybe this is just my experience, but uh, I, I suspect many of us have this similar strange relationship um, with pride and humility. Um, it can be such a tricky thing to, to pin down. I have this pride in my heart that, that rises up, that, that whispers in my ear, um, this sense that I'm better, I'm worth something, that I can do a little bit more or do a little bit better than other people So I try and do and say things that that, that would impress people so they see me. I want to work hard. I want to accomplish more. I want to post it on Facebook so the world can see it. uh, So that everyone knows how good I am. And then almost immediately, but I find with far more depth, this pride is met with fear and doubt and weakness. I'm terrified. The more I strive for success, the more I'm terrified of failure. I feel incapable to, to be what I'm, what I'm supposed to be, to be what I'm projecting that I am. I recognize this, this weakness, this inability in me to keep up this polished exterior. Any moment this house of cards could just come crumbling down and, and everyone would see who I really am, which is, which is not much. Sometimes, sometimes, This battle in me causes me to hide. I pull back. I I, I keep people at arm's reach. I don't do and say the things that I should do and say. Other times I try to overcompensate. I step out where I shouldn't. I say things that I shouldn't. I try to to cover up my insecurity, to try to keep up appearances. When we come to this topic of pride and humility, we're a mess. And I think that's one of the reasons we have such a hard time understanding the message of Christmas, and frankly, the gospel. Both of them get twisted and undermined, mistold, misrepresented, because we don't know what to do with that reality of our own pridefulness and our own failure in the face of a God who is infinitely worthy and yet eminently humble. Jesus Christ said the, the long awaited uh, promised Messiah. He came. This, this exalted, holy, mighty, eternal God himself comes to earth in the flesh. He is the one who, who could rightly claim all power and authority. He could come in, in strength and, and might. He could be proud and back it up. He actually is better and is able to do more than any other person. And yet he doesn't come and flex his muscles As we would expect. He doesn't come and show off the way we would. He doesn't come in prestige and power to to impress everyone around him. It's one of the many wonders of this this Christmas story that we know so well. Though there are all kinds of high and and lofty promises that that are being fulfilled. It is literally the turning point in all of human history. This coming Savior, God himself in the flesh, intentionally, purposefully comes to humble beginnings. Plays out in the the well-known manger scene. He's he's born in a barn, surrounded by animals, worshipped first by shepherds. But it starts before that. All the way back, Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we see this humble beginning. I want to read this section I'm going to read the the whole section that we're going to look at from now through to Christmas, uh, 26 to 35. Um, That's where we're going to end on Christmas Eve, three weeks from now. But um, this morning, um, we're just going to zoom in on 26 to 31. So I'll read the whole thing and then we'll back up and and start our way through it. So Luke chapter 1, starting verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Would you pray with me, Father. As we uh, enter into the season of Advent, looking forward to um, the celebration of the birth of Christ, help us, Lord. Help us to see it fresh. Help us to see the the wonder of truth that is there, that this is so much more than a, a nostalgic story. This is the beginning of our salvation. This is the foundation of our hope. God, would you speak this morning? Lord, you know my inability, my weakness, my insufficiency. Lord, would you use me anyway for the glory of your name? the good of your church, would you speak this morning through your word. God, we invite your spirit um, to soften our hearts, to help us see with clarity what you have written, to help us know the truth, to rest in it securely. God, would you glorify yourself this morning as we look into your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see here right off the bat, bat, verses 26 and 27, um, he came as humble. He came as humble. 26 opens giving a a reference of time, the sixth month. Um, The passage before this is is telling the story of uh, this same angel appearing to Zechariah, announcing the, the, uh, the, the coming birth of John the Baptist. And so it's in the sixth month of that pregnancy that this announcement takes place, the same angel Gabriel is sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, just listen to the way that's introduced. And uh, the first thing we need to know is the word city there is, is pretty generous. Um, the word polis in, in the Greek is a very generic term. It's some kind of a, a dwelling place, a gathering. Um, in Alberta, we use the word city as almost like a technical sense. Um, you have a city if you have more than 10,000 people. Um, if, you're, if you're less than that, if you're down um, under 10,000, then you're, then you're just a town. Unless you're actually under 1,000, then you're a village. Okay, Um, you don't even get town status. Now, from what we know, um, Nazareth would have been just barely qualifying uh, for village status. Like it's down there. 300, maybe 500 people max. Um, They would have been in in danger of being demoted to Hamlet. Um, So like we're talking uh, the size of Cremona or or one-tenth of Didsbury. So notice a, a city in Galilee named Nazareth. I have this problem all the time. Um, someone comes up and asks me where I grew up. Um, I have to stop and make an assessment. How well do you know Alberta? Um, if I'm outside of Alberta, I'm just going to tell them, like, northeast to Edmonton, and maybe they know where that is. Um, if, uh, if it's someone who's, who's local, maybe I think they have a little more idea what's going on uh, around here, I I'm, I'm most likely will say Cold Lake area. Um, Technically, we're closer to Bonnyville, but that's smaller, a little less known. Um, the truth is, uh, I grew up south of Ardmore, but that doesn't help anybody. Nobody knows where Ardmore is. Ardmore is this little nothing town about the size of Nazareth. Um, that's why Luke has to say a town, you, you don't know it, but it's in Galilee. Oh, Okay, I know Galilee. Yeah, it's called Nazareth. Nazareth was small. It was not, there were no major roads through Nazareth. Um, it's not mentioned a single time in the entire Old Testament um, or in the Talmud or Josephus. Um, worse than that, uh, it does show up. Um, John 1 uh, 46, Philip the, the disciple goes to tell Nathaniel that we found the Messiah, we found Jesus, um, and he calls him Jesus of Nazareth. And what's Nathaniel's first response? Like you'd think it would be, Wow, the Messiah! This is amazing. Um, but no, his first words recorded uh, for all of eternity for us to read, his first words are, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like that's the reputation this city had, this town, this hamlet. It, it's Podunkville. If you're going to announce the, the coming of a, of a mighty king or, or, or some, uh, some great important person, you want to make that announcement in Jerusalem or maybe Rome. This is a big deal, not in Nazareth. But this announcement and the family home of Jesus is is notably unnotable. It is obscure. It's as backwoods as you can get. And not only is this angel sent to Nazareth, but then we read um, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now we hear virgin and we start getting amped up. This is the virgin birth. We know what's, we know what's coming, but you've got to see this first from the perspective of a first-century Jew. A girl? A woman? Like, this is another big black mark. She's, she's, not, even, she's not even counted as trustworthy as a, as a witness in court. And she's not a married woman who might have a you know, respectable son or respectable husband. She's a virgin. She's unmarried. That day, uh, 15 was getting a little old to be unmarried. So you have this young lady. She's betrothed, but not yet married. And and even then to a man named Joseph, this local carpenter in Nazareth. That's all we know about her. Um, Compare this, if you would, to the previous announcement of John the Baptist. Pretty interesting as you look at the, the contrast here. Gabriel just finished speaking to Zechariah, um, who's not only a man and a mature man. Um, he's an honored man. He's a priest. And, and not just a priest, he's a priest who has been chosen uh, to serve in the temple. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime maybe kind of honor. And, and it's while he's there in Jerusalem serving in the temple that the angel appears to him. And listen to verses 5 and 6, um, what, what the angel says about, about Zechariah and his wife. Um, verse 5. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah and of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is high praise. This is a a significant, respected couple in Jerusalem. Um, If if God would have said, I'm going to use this couple, you'd have said, yeah, that makes sense. Not Mary and Joseph in Nazareth. The announcement of Jesus, like a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. The virgin's name is Mary. That's it. That's all we get. That's all we know. All of this adds up to a lot of nothing. The almighty, eternal God, uncontainable by the expanse of the universe, unstoppable by any any other force or power, the creator, sustainer of all things, makes the announcement of his grand entrance onto the stage of human history to a probably 13-year-old girl that, that no one had ever heard of. He came deliberately, humbly making this statement um, by this lack of statement. He didn't fight for, protect his glory. He didn't build up this fanfare. He felt no need to be defensive or to, to overcompensate for his weakness. Though he was everything, he became as nothing. And of course, This is just the beginning of what we call the the humiliation of Christ, the the descent into his humility. Um, Didn't get any better from there. As we already mentioned, he goes from this humble announcement to then being born in the the manger, surrounded by animals, worshiped by shepherds. As he grew up, um, Isaiah 53 summarizes it well prophetically. Um, He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was cast aside. He was a nobody. He was worse than a nobody. He was despised. Philippians 2 goes on to tell the rest of the story, verses 6 to 8. Who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung onto, fought for. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being humbled. um, Sorry, found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cross being the most grotesque way to execute the the worst and most despised of criminals. You couldn't even even talk about crucifixion for a citizen. They're exempt from that. This is just for the the bottom dwellers. He was disgraced, humbled, the lowest of all human experience. All All the average men and women of the world looked down at him, mocked him on the cross. The thieves, the thieves that hung beside him on the crosses mocked him. He came as humble and he was humbled. All of it, absolutely, intentionally, deliberately, making this statement to us, to to we who are actually weak and pathetic and yet proud, who think we need to to fight for and protect what, what little glory we can get our hands on who are so prone to claw after and try to steal glory that's not ours to take. Think about this. We were created by God, placed in the the perfect garden, the Garden of Eden. Um, We were given this place of the the pinnacle of creation, the image of God given dominion to rule over the earth. And what did we do? We wanted more. We want more. Adam and Eve are not content with that, with what they've been given. They, They... They grasp breaking the only rule that they had been given, Eden from the one tree in the garden from which the Lord said they may not eat. And and in that act, they're they're trying to usurp God's place. We want to be like God. We want to have the knowledge of good and evil. We We want to be our own rule and authority. And we do the same thing. Every time we sin, every time um, we do what God has commanded us not to do, or we fail to do what God has commanded us to, um, we're taking that step forward. No, I will be the ruler. I'll take a little more glory, thank you very much. We try to exalt ourselves to the place of God. But Jesus, who was God, humbled himself below man. From the announcement to the young girl in Nazareth, to the manger, to the crucifixion on the cross, Christ came as humble. And it confronts our pride. It hits us square in the face. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 20 1:20 to 23. Paul writes, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's intentional. Where's the wise man today? He doesn't get it. Where are the scribes, the scholars? They don't see it. God's wisdom excluded the wise. Cut them off. Pushed them out. Made Jesus a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, you're, going to do it with your, you're not going to do it with your pride intact. You're not going to come to me thinking that, that you're this great and wonderful thing. The humiliation of Jesus Works as a, a sieve, a, a strainer, a, a roadblock to our pride. Um, years ago, I used to drag my wife down into holes in the ground. Um, we would go caving out in the mountains. And um, you, you go through this hole in the side of the mountain. And as you get further in, the light disappears. And there's rooms that are as, as big as this room. Uh, and then there are spots that come right down to the point where um, you have to turn your head sideways and, and shuffle through. Um, if you're wearing a backpack with your, your lunch and your extra gear, um, it becomes a problem. You, you get to these, these squeeze places and you got you to take it off. You can't go through with your backpack on. That's, that's how this works. You can't make it through here with your pride on you. It won't fit. Jesus Set up as this stumbling block, this roadblock, the the humiliation of Jesus does one of two things. The first thing it does is it it confronts the proud. And it keeps them out. Option one is you, you look at Jesus, this supposed great Savior claiming to be the, the king of the universe, claiming to be God himself, and you see his humble beginning and his lowly state and his embarrassing crucifixion, and you scoff. No way. I'm not following that guy. It's unbelievable to you. With all the effort that you spend to try to grasp for glory, to try to puff yourself up, it would make no sense to follow Jesus and have that all wiped out. This is absurd. Why would the God of the universe subject himself to this? Far more humiliation than I would ever be willing to undergo. And that's it. I'm done. I'm done with Jesus. I'm not going to let go of my pride. I will not follow him. Got too much to lose. It confronts the proud, but then at the same time, it comforts the humble. It comforts the humble. Those who will let go Of their wrongful pride. Who will see and know the God of the universe in the laying down of his glory. Will see the the manger and the cross and and be overwhelmed in awe and wonder. This great and glorious God would do such a thing as this. And the, the humble coming of this king humbles us in a good way. And it becomes a comfort to us. And that's because not only did he come as humble, but he came to the humble. That's point two. He came to the humble, verses 28 and 30. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying. And try to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, sadly, we need to start from back a ways. Um, we can't just take this verse as it is, I fear. Um, because I would say this is possibly the single most misused and understood verse in all of Scripture. I, I, don't, think that's an, I don't think that's an overstatement. Gabriel says to Mary, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Down in verse 30, he says it again. You found favor with God. One of the the first translation of the Bible was into Latin, Jerome, uh, the year 405. And uh, and he translated this phrase, favored one, as gratia plane, meaning having much grace. And that's a a fine translation. Um, The problem is it was terribly twisted. The Catholic Church began to teach not that Mary received grace from God, but that God was gracious. Sorry, that that, that God chose Mary because she had grace. That she's a source of grace. That she was chosen because of what she had in her possession. This is the beginning of some... Very dangerous, very harmful teaching that remains very much alive today. You've heard Catholics talk about the Hail Mary, not the football pass, guys. Don't go there. Um, this, this prayer that they pray. This, I mean, I think if you look over Christian history, um, this is the single most prayed prayer. Here it is. They would pray this, Hail Mary. i got a problem right there. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray that over and over and over. If you go to, to, to penance and confess your sin, the priest might tell you, pray that prayer 50 times and you'll be forgiven. Okay? Pray to, pray to Mary, asking her to, to, to forgive you, to give you grace. I don't want to misrepresent their belief, so let me quote to you from, from their documents, from their writings. Um, Pope Pius X wrote an, unoffic- or sorry, an official letter to the church, 1904, so this is fairly recent. Um, it's called the Ad Deum Ilium Letesimum, and it says this, Mary is the dispenser of all the gifts that our Savior purchased for us by his death and by his blood. Again, this is still about Mary. Mary is the supreme minister of the distribution of graces, the distributor of the treasures of his merits. Pope Leo XI, uh, his official statement, October Mensi um, 1891, he wrote: Mary is the intermediary through whom is distributed unto us the immense treasure of the mercies gathered by God. Um, those are not. Outlier examples, there are plenty of examples just like that. This is is Catholic dogma. This is their teaching. They pray to Mary as the one who dispenses the grace of God. And and this exists, this happened out of a misreading of of these words that we just read in Luke. As if this verse says that God chose Mary because Mary um, was a source of grace. Mary had grace. Mary had had earned God's favor, and and as one who had earned so much of God's favor, she earned more than she needed for her own salvation, and so now she's able to give that out to other people. So, So ask Mary, and Mary will give you grace. There's no gentle way to put it. That is damning heresy. That's it. The gaps between Catholicism and biblical Christianity are not few and are not small. It's false teaching, which if believed, and I know there are many people who call themselves Catholics, but they don't believe this, I would say you're in a really tough position. Um, You need to flee that. If you don't believe that, then get out of there because the Catholic Church does. This is official Catholic teaching. And, And those... People, you should have nothing to do with this. But if you believe that, if you're trusting in Mary for grace, looking to her to escape the punishment in hell, that faith will not save you. It just won't. We're not called to trust in Mary. Even if you say, well, I'm trusting in Jesus, it's just that Jesus' grace comes through Mary. No, we're saved by by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. One mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. That's it. Ironically, this verse actually teaches the exact opposite of what it's been so abused to mean. Gabriel calls Mary, O favored one. Why? Well, the word translated favor there, um, both in 28 and in 30, um, the root word is Cairo. It's it's the word that's typically translated grace. But it's a bit of a strange usage of it. Um, It's a perfect past participle. So just grammatically, it's perfect. So it's a past completed action. You have been graced, um, and it's passive, so she's the receiver of it, not the giver of it. She has been received grace, and then it's a participle, which is a, a verb that describes a noun. She is the one who has been graced. Mary is much graced. The only other time Cairo is used as this kind of um, perfect passive participle uh, is Ephesians 1.6. Looking at verses 5 and 6. He, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. There it is. He has blessed us in the beloved. That word blessed is the same word in the same form. We are blessed by God. We are favored by God in Christ. The focus is not that that Jesus came and gave us something because we deserved it. It's the exact opposite. That he came to the humble and gave us grace. He gave us precisely what we did not deserve. That's what makes it grace. The virgin in Nazareth was not some great high and lofty saint. Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, Elizabeth. Um, that kind of was the focus. He does make a big deal of that. They were both righteous before God, walking blameless, in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. When he comes to, to Mary, it's just not there. That's not the focus. And I think, yeah, she trusted the Lord. She was faithful. She was obedient. When the Lord came to her, she said, Hey, I'm, I'm your servant. Lord, use me. That's, that's exemplary. That's wonderful. But the emphasis is not on her worthiness, but her humility. Mary herself is surprised. The Lord had come to her. It says she's greatly troubled at this saying. It's interesting that that word is used twice in the near context. Zechariah was troubled when the angel came to him. Herod the Great is troubled when he heard about a new king being born. But, But only Mary is greatly troubled. I think we get a a glimpse into why she's greatly troubled. If we look ahead to verse 48, she she has this song of of worship that flows out after. And she says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's what has her wondering. That's why this doesn't make sense to her. Why have you come to me? I'm a nobody. I'm I'm a nothing. This doesn't make any sense Why would this blessing be given to this this lowly, unknown virgin girl? I'm from an unknown family in an unknown town. I'm a nobody. That's why it says that that, that, uh, all generations will call me blessed. Not because I was some great person, but because I was bestowed a great blessing. I was given so much more than, than what I deserved. It's her humility that stands out. I think that's the focus of these verses. The Lord comes as humble and he comes to the humble. He comes bestowing grace. He comes giving undeserved favor to the lowly, to the weak, to the nobodies, to the filthy and despised. Mary didn't earn this. Who could ever earn God's favor? Not not one of us could. Mary, um, again, may have been a a very upstanding, principled, exemplary young lady, but she's still a sinner. Like every one of us. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Mary's not the the single exemption to that verse. And neither are you. Neither am I. Ecclesiastes 7, 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth, who does good and never sins. That's it. That's us. We're sinners. Every one of us. But, but Jesus, coming as humble, came to the humble. Those who find themselves crushed, realizing that this, this king of the universe, the only one deserving of all glory and all honor, didn't fight for that, but, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. We realize the absurdity of our own pride. And all of a sudden, that house of cards just comes crumbling down. Things that we most, the one thing we most feared would happen. We realize before God, we are naked and laid bare. It's all out on the table. In reality, it doesn't doesn't matter what, what I've convinced the people around me to see. God sees. He sees everything. He knows. He knows my every failure. He knows that I actually am incapable of what I need to be. I actually am completely weak and broken. That I'm not enough. I am worse than a failure, actually. I'm a sinner. I've gone into the negative. I fall short not just of, of being a, a capable, um, intelligent, professional, successful person that, that I've tried to project or whatever it is you're trying to let the world see that you are. No, I fall short of the most fundamental way. I've failed to be what God has created me to be. And for those of us who are able to accept it, there's peace here. There's hope here. Our first instinct is just like Adam and Eve, right? We want to cover it. Cover it up. Hide it. Try to to cover our shame. Try to fake success. The Lord sees through it all. And those who stand truly humbled before Jesus, the Lord says that uh, what, what he said through Gabriel to Mary. You found favor with God. You have found favor with God. You've been given an undeserved gift. God has put his favor on you, even in your lowly, despised, despicable, broken state. Jesus comes to you because Jesus came as humble and he came to the humble. It means it's okay. It means it's safe to admit, I'm not perfect. To admit, I'm just not anything special. It's okay to just take that long breath out and and just be broken, weary, small, weak, insufficient, incapable. Go ahead and own that. You're not enough, and that's okay. And it's okay, finally, because not only did Jesus... Come as humble and to the humble. He came to save the humble. He came to save the humble. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Listen to the wording there. This is so intentional. Um, keep your eyes on, uh, on, on, on Luke 1.31. Let me read Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. It's the same language. It's it's verbatim all the way down to the name. And those names matter. Emmanuel means God with us. This again is this astonishing statement of his humility. God himself condescending to be with us, the almighty among us. And that is what this child would be. That's who Jesus was. He was God with us. But also here, Gabriel tells Mary to name the child Jesus. And the name Jesus simply means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. That's why in Matthew 1.21, he says, she shall bear a son. He shall call his name Jesus for because, here's why, call him Jesus, because he's going to save his people from their sins. This child would be Emmanuel. He would be God himself come among us. And he would also be Jesus, God himself, coming to save his people from their sin. He doesn't just come as humble, gentle, and lowly to the humble, but he comes to rescue us our humiliation out of our desperate need. He doesn't just meet us there, but he comes to bring us out. How many times does this same scene play out in in movie after movie? The prisoner held captive, locked away in in a dark hole, defeated, helpless, broken, terrified, beyond hope. And then the hero comes. Bursting through the door, takes the captive by the arm. I'm getting you out of here. I've come to rescue you. And in slow motion with guns a-blazing or superpowers on full display, he he bursts out and and the hero destroys every last villain one by one. And the helpless victim is rescued, is brought into the light, back to, to freedom and safety and joy and life. That's what's happening here. Jesus meets us in our lowest place, captive and tortured by sin and death, and he says, I'm getting you out of here. We're not staying here. I've come to rescue you. His birth that we celebrate at Christmas is the moment of that rescuer breaking through the door. The light comes pouring in. He enters into our cell with us. This perfect, flawless plan to set us free. His death on the cross, bearing the the penalty for our sin. That's how he disarms every enemy. Listen to Colossians 2, 14 and 15. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Disarming the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan is our greatest enemy. But he only has one real power and that is to accuse us before God. To show that that we're actually guilty. Knowing that God is holy and, and righteous and will punish all sin. So that's a powerful position to be in. He is, in a sense, wielding the wrath of God as a weapon against us because we deserve it, and he's our accuser. But Jesus disarmed that weapon. When he took our sin on the cross, he took that rightful accusation against us, the condemnation that we fully deserved, and on the cross, he bore the penalty. He paid the price For our sin, in in so doing, he grabbed every single gun at, at Satan's disposal and he bent the barrels and he turned them toward himself and he forced the trigger pull so that every round, every missile is launched out at him and emptied. He unloaded everything Satan had, every power taken away. So the wrath of God that we deserve, that was aimed at us, rightly has been spent on him. Paid. Satan's guns are empty. He's put to shame. He has nothing left. Romans 8, 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone. He came to the rescue. But notice, he rescues the humble. Those who insist on standing on their own I got this. Hanging on to their own pride and dignity. Demanding that they're fine on their own. They say, I'm pretty sure I can satisfy God. I can dig myself out of this. I can be enough. Those who refuse to admit their sinful position. Their desperate need for help. Jesus said, Luke 5, 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. I didn't come for those who were walking around with cancer eating away their face and screaming out, "I'm fine, I'm fine." I came for those who recognize their desperate sinful state. If you're going to stand and tell me you're okay, you're healthy, You're not broken. You're not weak. You're not a failure. You're you're pretty sure you you can handle this on your own. Jesus didn't come for you anyway. Ouch. You are on your own. In fact, actually worse than that, you've made God your enemy. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Are you holding on to your pride? Insisting, I'm not that bad. I'm enough. I can do this. I can clean myself up a little bit. Good news. We're all we were all once there. And we don't have to stay there. Let it go. You can't do it. You can't clean yourself up. You can't fix your life. You can't do anything to deserve God's favor. And until the weight of your sin and the hopelessness of your desperate situation absolutely crushes you to the point where you realize you have no hope. Only there do we truly have hope. On the other hand, do you feel your weakness? Do you feel your brokenness overwhelming? you crushed by by guilt and, and, and sin and shame. Do you see yourself as weak? It's okay. It's okay to look square in the face of our sinfulness and our weakness and our hopeless situation. The humble beginnings of Jesus. This story of Christmas reminds us that God himself came as humble to the humble to save the humble. That's why he came. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. Josh, why don't you come and um, prepare to play communion is that moment. I'm not enough. I need someone outside of me to save me. I'm not enough. I need to stay consistently connected with Christ. I'm not enough. I need his death on my behalf. If that's not you this morning, I'm just asking you to let that pass. This is for those who are trusting in Christ, who are feeling their inability and trusting in him. Before we go there, I want to just take a few moments, um, quiet where you are, just spend a few moments in prayer. Think through this. What's the state of your heart before the Lord? Have you been holding on to that pride? Or have you been overwhelmed with guilt and shame trying to hide that from the Lord? Just let it go. Just admit your place before him. Um, so let's just take a, a couple of minutes in prayer uh, and then Josh will, pray, will play, and we'll sing together and then I'll come and we'll take communion together.